Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes and Friends, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out with friends. I'm Noah, you probably know me as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and you probably know me as 12-Tone. And today I'm really excited for this one. We're joined by a rising star in the YouTube community. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, Of my many names, I think the one most appropriate for this one is Foreign, from Foreign Man in a Foreign Land where we are saving Caribbean culture with commentary. And yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's, the best, that's the best introduction I could give myself. There we go. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So, so do you just want to tell people, like you said, saving Caribbean culture, kind of what are, the, what are the vibes of your videos? What are you trying to kind of accomplish on your channel? What can people expect if they open up a foreign man in a foreign land video? Oh, wow. Many things. It depends... On the day, but for the most part, if you're, if I've been able to disabuse someone of some negative stereotypes, harmful or not, about the Caribbean, whether it be we ride to school on dolphins or, <laughs> you know, we all are from Jamaica and we all say man and stuff like that, then, you know, my job is done. And that's like the very superficial you know, mission, call to action. And the more deeper nuance and minutia of it is trying to put myself at a position where I can advocate for the Caribbean interest when it comes to more so socio-political discourse when it comes to race, gender, ethnicity, uh, anything to do with the human condition. A lot of the time when we're talking about canonical black issues in America, which I've had the privilege of being in for the past, what, about almost 10 years now, um, we typically forget that there's, of course, Caribbean contributions to that. So I try to add my voice to the choir of the euphony, I like to say, of different diverse voices uh, on the racial discourse, gender discourse, all kind of discourses we're having. And that ends up being a video that I like to think is funny. Some people probably don't. I've heard that it's it's not it, it's kind of enough to slap a knee at. Um, <laughs> I, I talk about that's a good metric. <laughs> yeah, you know, like I think the people are having a good time when they hit a foreign video, and they I like to creep in like a couple nuggets of of information here there. Um, and so far, so good. We've seen incredible growth over the last couple months from. Jeez, I swear I was just spamming Reddit boards with my YouTube links about four or five months ago. And here I am, like, getting <laughs> yeah. more comments than I can even manage. So it's it's definitely great. Uh, the algorithm is definitely blessing me. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've all we've all gone through that Reddit phase. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's always it's always a pretty wild ride when your stuff starts to take off. <laughs> I really still don't even know how to feel about it. I mean, of course, now um being on Nebula and Standard, which is where I've been able to get the privilege of of meeting you all to at, um, it's it's also been just been a blast in being at such a such a big table with with people that I've yeah. already watched before. I've, of course, watched Polyphonic from the FD Signifier feature a long time ago, a few months ago. Yeah, I think thank you. you guys were talking about yeah. rock. Yeah, rock and black music. And I've been watching 12 Tone from, from forever because I'm a musician and a producer. So it's it's just kind of like surreal to be <laughs> <laughs> now on a podcast. It's just like, yeah, this yeah. is well, part of the course. We are very happy to have you on the podcast and kind of... To that effect, what is it that you wanted to talk with us about today? Well, of the many things that I honestly can talk about when it comes to music because it's my first love, I think it would be an entertaining conversation. I'd love to get what you all think about cultural appropriation in music. I, It's, of course, a mainstay on my channel and it's gotten a bad rep for the most part because a lot of people take cultural appropriation now to best be this oogie boogie word you know it's just yeah. a word that people cry like when uh they're talking about culture and it's a very nuanced topic because there are some things that call for you know just a oh cultural appropriation isn't necessarily that big of a deal in this case but it's also sometimes very um threatening especially to minority cultures. And uh, I guess I don't want to get into too much of the spoilers for it. Um, <laughs> ease myself into the conversation. But yeah, yeah on a surface level, what, do you all have any like um, experience with it? Uh, I know that y'all are musicians and... So 
one place, like one thing that you mentioned that I think would be probably a good place to start is this idea of cultural appropriation as like just a bad word, right? That like mm-hmm. people have this negative reaction to without really engaging with what it means. Cause like for, for example, a couple years ago now, I did a video about genre and how I think we talk about the concept of genre wrong. And one of the arguments I made in that video is I sort of split it up into three, like a, a genre into three different things. Like a, a genre is a set of compositional practices, a culture, and a history. And I laid out this whole argument, and near the end, I started to realize that the argument I was making might, to someone who wasn't like really listening to what I was saying, sound like I was saying there was no such thing as cultural appropriation or something like that. Mm. And so I decided that I was going to tack on near the end a section that was explicitly saying otherwise. I was saying, like, we have to recognize that these compositional practices are part of cultures and we that, like, not all cultures want to share, and especially when these cultures are not necessarily in positions to f- capitalize on their own, you know, cultural positioning. And you know what I mean. Right. Um, I'm blanking on words, but... Uh, but oh, when no, these, absolutely. Yeah. But especially when, when it's like marginalized communities that can't effectively capitalize on their own work, like majoritized communities, like swooping in and taking that stuff from them and then running with it is bad. And I got a lot of people in the comments being like, oh, I was, I agreed with you. I was totally with you until the section on cultural appropriation. <laughs> and it's like, well, but the, the rest of the video was an argument that compositional practices exist within cultural contexts. So yeah. I think you stopped agreeing with me a lot sooner than that. <laughs> but, like, people have this, like, knee-jerk reaction. I didn't even use the word cultural appropriation. I, I did reference, uh, link people to a T1J video because I mm. thought he explained the issue a lot better than I could have. So I was just like, I'm just going to hand that off, let someone who knows what they're talking about more than I do explain this. But, like, I very specifically never used the word cultural appropriation in that entire section, and people still were just like, as soon as they got a whiff that that was what I was talking about, they had this knee-jerk reaction of like, oh, no, you're wrong now. Even though everything you said that builds up to that, everything that this is a logical conclusion of makes sense to me. Yeah, I, I've had similar experiences. I mean, with my my latest video talking about cultural appropriation, it's right there in the, right there in the title, yeah. and it pissed a lot of people off like like very similar (laughs) where it definitely is this thing and and the thing is like i understand where these people are coming from because sometimes sometimes i feel like cultural appropriation is often something that like white people just call something cultural appropriation and try to kind of you know cancel it without any actual understanding of the culture that is ostensibly being appropriated. But by the same measure, cultural appropriation, I think, especially in music, um, like, like, I think it's a, it's a dialogue in all sorts of stuff and culture, but in music, it is like, it, it, it's so prevalent in music with like everything around rock and roll and hip hop and so much of the, so much of the music that kind of defines our current, you know, kind of modern canon, if you will, is music that was created by marginalized people, whether it's, you know, whether it's rock and roll and the blues, whether it's disco created by, you know, queer immigrant communities, whether it's hip hop, all of that stuff being kind of like amalgamated into this cultural engine and leaving the, like harming the communities along the way. Mm -hmm. Indeed. And I think that like, it's it's amazing when you say it like people don't necessarily want to when people brand something as cultural appropriation it's it's a way of trying to disengage with it uh conceptually yeah. and thematically so it's also like canceling like when people yeah. say this is cancel culture immediately you begin to trivialize it you make it flippant and you know it's unfortunate because there's merit to cultural appropriation. I think for cancel culture, that's a whole different conversation. But I think what people want is accountability. (laughs) They don't want to stop someone from breathing. They just want them to be held accountable. Um, But, you know, accountability culture doesn't necessarily sound as It doesn't have that ring to it. It's not alliterative. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) It's harder to get mad at. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, you know, cultural appropriation on the other hand, and I guess since we could talk about it in the bad sense, I think that we should, of course, identify, you know, cultural appropriation. I, I don't have a definition on hand, but in my head basically is essentially when a majority culture takes a vestige or a tradition or a remnant of a minority culture and they kind of commodify it. Yeah. I think that that's a central element to it. They have to commodify in such a way. I don't think anybody's really getting mad at, um, you know, someone going uh, to take part in... I, I use the, the famous example of Adele going to, uh, I think it's Nottingham Carnival, which is this uh, carnival. I just did a video on it, but carnival is this uh, festive, Caribbean festive, but it's all over the world, really. Yeah. It's this fete, which is a party, of course, and you adorn yourself in all kind of, um, you know costumes and makeup and you dance into the street it's supposed to be a purge and Adele went to Nottingham Carnival and Nottingham of course is a very traditionally Caribbean area um, in the UK and she went out to dance and she's wearing a Jamaican bikini and uh, Bantu knots it was one of the first big videos that I did and it was weird because I was kind of in I was at a weird spot of it. I was saying, you know, this is not what we should be getting mad at when it comes to cultural appropriation because nobody's getting mad at it. The only person that was getting mad at it was Americans. <laughs> and and it really, everybody else, like the Jamaicans weren't, they loved it, you know, and, and everybody else were fine with it. But for the most part, Americans were saying, no, she shouldn't do that. But at the same time, I did have some qualms with it because in the sense that when black women would wear their hair in Bantu knots, they would get vituperated for it. You know, a Bantu knot, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's basically these small little knots um, that they, it's yeah. a protective style that black yeah. women have, you know, it comes from the Bantu tradition in Africa where they would tie their hair up into small knots. Uh, but in in everyday, you know, wear, if a black woman would wear that, they would get looked at, they would get jeered at. However, Adele is able to maintain a status of desirability and uh, still able to flaunt this hairstyle and this Jamaican bikini and be accepted and embraced in this culture. However, a black woman would not be able to. That was, yeah. That's the nuance that you yeah. deal with. with well, it. And, and that's like in, in my uh, recent video about uh, like Led Zeppelin and cultural appropriation, um, FD Signifier and I and uh, the most unruly and I were talking about like that's the Little Richard versus Elvis, right? Where Little mm-hmm. Richard is doing all the same stuff as Elvis, um, arguably doing it better because, you know, he, he grew up in black yeah. churches and things like that. And it's Elvis that becomes the superstar where Little Richard is still marginalized for the color of his skin. Yeah, and I think that speaks to, for me, one of the things that I've found really effective in trying to explain this problem to people who don't get it is just the idea of taking up space. Mm. Because, like, in any sort of celebrity-based industry, which, you know, music certainly is, there's only so much room at the top. Yeah. In general, for a lot of reasons, white people have easier access to a lot of markets. Like, there's a reason... A lot of white kids my age, their first introduction to reggae was Sublime. Yeah. And like our first introduction to hip hop was Eminem. Like these are not coincidences. And I mean, so, even me, like I, I started, I, I really love funk. And the way I got into funk was through the Red Hot Chili Parliament? Peppers. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Because, yeah, Parliament. Exactly. <laughs> now, I mean, now I love George Clinton and Parliament and Sly and the Family Stone. And now I never listen to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but that's exactly. Red Hot Chili Peppers. That's I didn't even know they made funk. <laughs> Cal- Hotel California. Um, no, that's not. Is that the Red Hot Chili Peppers? No, they do Californication. Californication. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, they they did funk rock. That was their big, like, thing. And yeah, I had no idea. Like, at the time, I was, like, 14, and I, I had no idea how amazing Parliament were. And, I mean, so much of funk, whether it's Parliament or Sly and the Family Stone or Zap or any of these guys, uh, James Brown, obviously, so much of funk is so intrinsically tied to the black American experience. Like, it's honestly, like, like Sly and the Family Stone or Parliament, in my mind, are, like, probably the great American bands, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's interesting. Um, in the, I'm a political scientist by day. And basically one of the things that 
one of my professors have always said, the only true American things is baseball and jazz. So <laughs> everything else is is kind of a derivative of, of something else. Yeah. Um, and it's it's interesting, like when you think of it, um I, I and it's cultural appropriation for this part is is extremely interesting because you you don't want to stop this this flow of cultural. The initial phrase I think is cultural dissemination. When you yeah. think of being able to allow culture to freely migrate from different places. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. that's that's what you want because that's how you get, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which which I practice vehemently. I mean, and that's that's even how you get like people call jazz uniquely American, but that's what jazz is. Jazz is just this gumbo of all these different cultures that were in New Orleans, not New Zealand, <laughs> New Orleans yeah, well. at the beginning, <laughs> right? Like jazz, jazz and rock and roll too. Like these things are the merits of cultural conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like the thing that I th- I often see pushback in terms of when you're like, oh, cultural appropriation is bad, and people are like, well, no, it's it's cultural conversation and you want cultural conversation and cultural exchange. And that's how new art forms develop and new ideas happen. And I think that the thing for me is like, it's not a conversation if one side doesn't want to talk, right? Yes. Mm. Like, and then you're just sort of yelling in someone's ear. And that, I think back to like, back when I was in college, I had a, like a jazz pianist. I knew white guy, a great pianist and like good friend in general, but like, I remember at one point he was trying to make the argument that if cultural appropriation was bad, then black musicians shouldn't use chords because that's a European invention, which mm. is a really, really suspicious claim on its own, yeah. to be clear. Yeah. Like a lot of African, tra- like some African tra- musical traditions are largely monophonic. A lot of them have harmony. <laughs> this is not like Europe wasn't the only place that invented harmony. And then there's also a lot of further down the line issues with the claim anyway. But like, again, this comes back to the issue of like marginalized communities versus majoritized communities where if you have if you have the cultural power then you have the power to just shut people out if you want and so when marginalized communities use european traditions in their music if they get any sort of attention in mainstream like white culture it's not not voluntary on uh, majoritized cultures part. Yeah. So, right. yeah. Yeah, and I think that, and also, oh man, um, what was it? But basically, um, when it comes to a majority culture usurping the culture of a minority culture, one of the taglines that I used to say, the reason why I'm advocating, the reason why I have this channel in general is because of the way that Caribbean culture was being depicted in you know popular media. I did a video on Cool yeah. Runnings and uh, Luke Cage. Um, I just did a video on um, uh, the Caribbean as it pertains to the Bond series. And there's this theme in all of these different pieces of media where the Caribbean is very much flattened. The experience yeah. is extremely, yeah. you know, not nuanced at all. It's it's flattened to this one dialect, this one accent, a very primitive and um, backward type of depiction of the people. And, you know, people just make it look like everybody practices voodoo. Uh, but the thing is, the danger in that really is that you're risking this culture being not only lost or distorted in the case of Hollywood, but forgotten, you know, because when a majority culture takes a minority culture's culture and they depict it themselves, you begin to equate that culture, that depiction that the majority culture does it as, as the culture itself. And it would get to a situation where like you think red hot chili peppers, I'm not saying that you are, you think that red hot chili peppers (laughs) is funk and you wouldn't know parliament and funkadelic. Uh, But I mean, that's when I first got into it, that is exactly the situation. I know better now, like I've learned better now, (laughs) but you know, if I didn't have, if I didn't have a curiosity for music, I might've just thought that red hot chili peppers were the best funk band ever, you know, like, like that's, that's Mm. exactly it. Like that's such a good point that, that these things are lost. And I mean, I mean, that's something that I talked about a lot in my recent video. Again, I keep bringing up the Zeppelin one just because it's very it's relevant to this conversation. <laughs> Thank you. But, but like <laughs> the entire idea that like nowadays rock is generally viewed as white music, 
right? Like, every, I think every, <laughs> yeah. everyone knows it was invented by like Black American communities. But everyone, when when people think of a rock band, they think of you know four white dudes with long hair, right? Like that's yeah. kind of that's yeah. our cultural idea of rock is as a white music, and that's exactly it. So much of these conversations are lost and something that I always think is a real kind of shame from that loss as well is the not only the loss of understanding of these cultures but the loss of dialogues within these cultures you know where to to use funk Mm. funk is so great because it was born out of this dialogue between like rhythm and blues and soul and rock and roll you know it was born out of this dialogue between these distinct things that were all culturally black. And I imagine, especially with Caribbean culture, like the Caribbean is such a vibrant place with so many different cultures kind of mingling and conversing with each other. And when you flatten it, I think so much of that dialogue is lost, right? Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. I think that's a perfect way of putting it. I mean, I remembered something when you uh, mentioned the part about, uh, equating you know rock with with whiteness yeah because in the bahamas i while everybody was listening to mavado vibes cartel and all kind of just quotidian um uh dancehall and reggae uh i i was listening to the smiths i was listening to radiohead (laughs) i i made some videos about um how basically i was listening to i was going through my indie phase i was listening to the cure i was listening to death grips i was listening to all kind of alternative you were crying a lot oh god (laughs) i just just like thinking about everything overthinking reading wild and stuff you know and i'm just like i'm just like okay everybody listening to me listening to this music and everybody's just like, you know, why are you like, it would literally say, why are you so white? Yeah. It's not necessarily like, you know, why do you listen to white music? But you know, they would just like, just take it to the next logical step. Like, why are you so white? You know, why is it that you are listening to this rather than that? And it's amazing because you are right. You're right that it, it prevents this dialogue, this discourse, but it also is used as a way of gatekeeping particular cultures Mm. so that you will make it difficult for a particular ethnicity or gender or or race to be able to engage with this particular remnant of a culture because it's associated with another you know it's so interesting with that like gatekeeping and like erasure too because at the end of the day post-punk as a music like do you know like the the kind of like historical cultural origins of post-punk it's born out of dub music right like it was born post-punk was born Mm -hmm. out of cultural exchange that happened in the uk when um the jamaican diaspora in the uk was creating dub music and they were living in kind of like urban london and hanging out with all these punk acts like that's that's why the clash always played like ska and stuff like that Mm -hmm. like it's it's very like even even calling the Smiths and stuff like that, which again, like I don't I don't blame anyone for calling that white people music. Like as a white person, <laughs> yes. that that feels like white people it is music. White. <laughs> but its historical origins, its cultural origins, are in dub, which is an incredibly Caribbean thing, right? Like dub is dub oh. is one of the coolest things ever to come out of Jamaica in my mind. Like I I love dub music. I think yes. it's absolutely brilliant. And again, that's that's that erasure that happens when people don't acknowledge the actual cultural roots of this and don't like post-punk evolving out of that, I think is a perfect example of like a great cultural conversation, you know, where it's like mm-hmm. these, yeah. l- like, <clears throat> like Bob Marley has a song where he shouts out like the clash and the damned and stuff. And like the punk and the punk and ska and reggae connection was very tight then, but then somehow I wonder why this always happens. Somehow the, uh, you know, the the black origins of that and the Caribbean origins of that got erased and it just became white people music. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's um, when you mentioned the part about uh, dub, especially I have a video all dedicated to the late Lee Scratch Perry. Yes. And. And people do not give Lee Scratch Perry. And and this brings me into a point very quickly <laughs> um, that I wanted to touch on, especially. Uh, of course, Lee Scratch Perry is 
he, he's ascribed to Dub, him and King Tubby. When yeah. you talk about Dub, you can't talk, not talk about them. Uh, but people don't realize how much that influenced, you know, the Beatles, you know, being able to record yeah. uh, the the techniques. You know, these True, people were also yeah. engineers. You know, if it weren't for King Tubby and Lee Scratch Perry, uh, the the remix wouldn't have been a thing. Remixing songs would not have been a thing. Yeah. The, the recording practices that came with Lee Scratch Perry um, and the engineering ingenuity that came as a result of these two Jamaican I mean, fellas just farting around in the studio would not have happened. Well, they were they were kind of like, as far as I understand it, like some of the first people to understand that the studio is an instrument, right? Like the studio yes. is an instrument yeah. just like ev- everything else. And they really like made incredible use of that. Yeah, and like modern music as we know it wouldn't exist without yeah. that philosophy. I, I mean, speaking of speaking of the Beatles as well, um, and people that influenced the Beatles, Harry Belafonte was a huge, huge Ooh, influence yeah. on like a whole bunch of a whole bunch of those like '60s rock bands. Like Harry Belafonte was uh, like really, really important again in terms of that's that's that ongoing cultural conversation, right? Indeed, and I mean, and the thing about it, and this is and this is the part that I really wanted to to appreciate when it comes to uh, this is that, you know, I looked at with Lee Scratch Perry, one of the, the discourses that came out of that conversation was about uh, the origins of hip hop. And it's a very tumultuous origin. And it goes back to this being a majority versus minority culture type of thing that we're dealing with when it comes to cultural appropriation. Because a lot of the times when we're talking about it, when I, when I frame the origins of hip hop, I... I'm of the school that dance hall was the origins of hip hop. Mm. That is a very controversial statement for a lot. For <laughs> I found that for a lot of people on YouTube in the YouTube comment sections in these YouTube streets, they will mm. definitely foam at the mouth if you begin to say that it was not DJ Herc and all these guys that came up with it. Because the understanding being that dance hall came from toasting and toasting some of the yeah. early forms of of uh rapping uh with the late Uroy um from Jamaica this came from the sound system culture that then was in, exported to uh you know New York and of course New York is where hip hop quote unquote was born uh with some of these acts then rapping around there you wouldn't have gotten that without dance hall and sound system culture so that's, and, and the thing is, that's when rap started and then rap got it from Jamaica, which isn't that revolutionary when you think about it, because New York is just comprised with a lot of Caribbean influence as well. So it would make sense that early rap stars, Biggie was Jamaican. Um, you know, a lot of these guys were um, of Caribbean descent and Caribbean origin. That's- but the thing is, it's like, the thing is that it then turned into a point where you don't even think of the Caribbean origins of rap yeah and it, it basically the thing is that you know it's it's a majority culture even though black is a minority in the states it is still american culture yeah and it still yeah. was able to take the minority culture of caribbean culture and then turn it i think that's that's something that i wanted to like, like brings us to something i really wanted to talk about and pick your brain on is specifically like, and I think I'm guilty of this as well, but in general, I think a lot of discourse around this views black culture as this monolith, but it very much is not a monolith, right? Like Caribbean culture, like you were just saying there, there's a different power dynamic between Caribbean culture and African-American culture. And there's different power dynamics between cultures of different parts of the Caribbean and stuff as well. Right, exactly. And that's it right there. You know, it's not a monolith. Uh, you could even find different, you will, of course, find different African-Americans from dif- from the same place that think absolutely different, absolutely differently in the same household, in the same family, yeah. fraternal yeah. twins, extremely different people. And it goes the same uh, <clears throat> when it comes to cultural appropriation between Caribbean um, Americans, African-Americans, all over the African diaspora. Um, and hip hop is one of those schisms because I got a lot of vitriol um, when it came to Black Americans and and Black Caribbean people talking about it because depending on who you ask, you know it's it's just the chicken or the egg. You know what I mean? And yeah, it's just a very th- very vehement debate. I think I think it's interesting too because like if you go to the UK and you look at grime, like 
Nobody mm. has any doubt that Grime's origins come from dance hall and sound system culture and stuff like that, right? Like, and Grime is kind of the UK's, like, you know, they're at, at least in my mind, their coolest hip hop export is Grime, right? Opinion, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and Grime, like Grime, clearly, there's no discussion there. Like, nobody would debate that Grime doesn't come out of sound system culture. I'd hope, I'd hope not. <laughs> hope, yeah. <laughs> Would be hard to. Uh, but I think this also speaks to one thing that I wanted to sort of get your thoughts on at some point is the idea of sort of white scholarship as appropriation. Because I think, hmm. like, if we look at a lot of how black culture is reduced to a monolith, a lot of that is that not necessarily just scholarship, but also, like, media doesn't tend to focus on like the the diversity of black culture and we see nuance in things we focus on like just as just a mm. brief like not particularly rigorous study like i just did a quick search of um MTO which is uh, music theory online a major music theory journal i just did a, a quick search for lee scratch perry and got no results <laughs> uh what got like yeah. a handful of results for bob marley mostly as like tangential examples got 160 results for ludwig van beethoven and that's just the ones where they bothered to use his first name so <laughs> and this this sort of goes back to like when i was when i was in college i remember like we had two quarters of like music history which was you know european history and we had one quarter of world music, which was everything else. Ah, world and music. <laughs> I remember specifically that we spent more time on Beethoven specifically than on China. Jeez. Like all of China. The oh. like, thousands of years history of Chinese music, which we have a lot of records about. But we're just like, especially in America, we don't really spend much time looking at this stuff. And so it's when you don't, again, like what, what you focus on is where you see nuance. Yeah, yeah. Western centrism there too. I I actually yeah. re- recall there there being um something to that effect in my uh, course. They they harped a lot on Mali, but you know they quickly went on to yeah. to Shankar and all of these. Um, world music makes my skin crawl as well. Yeah, I- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. It's just the worst term. Yeah, world music as opposed to the music that wasn't made yeah. on the world. Yeah, Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> There's world yeah, yeah. music and there's Ziggy Stardust. It's just yeah, there's there's that Chris Hadfield performance of Space Oddity exactly. that wasn't world music. Oh, it's world yeah. adjacent. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um it it goes back to who writes these stories and yeah. and that's why like one of the things that like I always used to say you know write your story before someone else writes it for you uh, yeah. because and they'll write it wrong I love for the that. most part too because it it's just really and it goes back to. Uh, this uh, difference between the way the history was recorded as well. Not only was it the winners of wars that wrote these that wrote these stories, but also it's a culture. You know, uh, black people historically have been adept at dispelling their culture through storytelling. Um, it's something mm. that I, is a fixture on my uh, channel where I open up every video with a story somehow, some way. It, it's getting more abstract every day, but. Somehow it could be as very simple as me delivering a story to the camera uh, that somehow relates to the topic at hand, or it could be me reliving a story in real time. Um, but it's storytelling. And the reason why this is unique is because if you read, you know, Alex Haley's Roots, uh, you would understand just how important and essential that is to just the African diaspora and the the culture in general. However, one thing about that is... Uh, the story can can die or it could get Chinese whispered uh, in the sense that, like, you know, it will change from person to person. Yeah. As opposed to uh, what is more canonically understood to be how European history has been recorded, which is written down yeah. and, you know, codified. And you could epic poems and Shakespearean, you know, stuff like that, <laughs> scribes. You will be able to understand that. And that's the reason why it's so important now that we of course, have been able to document our history. That's why Jordan Peele is important. That's why YouTube is important. Um, because, yeah. you know, it now kind of equates everything. Written um, history, written stories, uh, verbal stories. All these stories There's are now record. being documented somehow. There's a record, exactly. On that, this is, I think, something that 
I wanted to sort of mention is like, I think Noah and I have both wanted to do an episode about cultural appropriation for a long time. It's something we yes. both think about, but it's something that I like, because I didn't want to be like telling someone else's story. Like my culture has never been harmfully appropriated. Right. Like I'm just like a white kid from the suburbs of Boston. Sometimes people do the Harvard Yard accent, but like <laughs> beyond that, <laughs> I'm fine. And so like, it's, it's not something that I've experienced with. And so like, I, we, we didn't like pick this topic for you. You brought it up, but like I, I yeah. really wanted to thank you for bringing it up and for selecting this because I think this is something that is really important and is something that I wanted to use this platform for at some point, but it's also something that I can't speak on with real authority, you know, or from, from real experience. Right. Yeah, no, and I think the fact that you waited um, to get a person of color as well um, as someone from these from these different intersections of of culture to get on the podcast speaks to your point about white scholarship on these issues and i think that the way that y'all are going about it is the right way as opposed to how a great deal of hollywood or scholarship as we've seen now <laughs> online when it comes <laughs> to lee scratch perry um <laughs> they would they would find ways to address it in woefully underwhelming uh methods and i think that I think it's good to do it so long as you as you get the the yeah. uh, full scope of it. And I, I think that kind of addressing it in those, you know, poor, like not bringing the communities in to address it is how you end up getting what we started off talking about, like the perception, the wrong perceptions of cultural appropriation, right? Like mm-hmm. what happens when you don't actually address somebody and like you used your... Uh, the the carnival example um mm-hmm. right like what happens when what happens when you're just probably well meaning person from a majoritarian culture that's like you know like oh well i'm i'm trying to i'm trying to help but i won't actually talk to this culture i will get mad for this culture rather than <laughs> platform them and let them say what they will exactly yeah and you get this game of telephone where the word starts to mean something more and more different from the actual useful thing it used to be yeah. like you were mentioning cancel culture where like or like woke is another example where like we have these like terms that meant something really specific and were really useful until just like white people started talking about them between ourselves without like checking in with people of color about whether we were using them right <laughs> yeah and, and it came from a song if i recall you know uh, um, saying stay woke, uh, the idea yeah. of saying woke came from a black song. Yeah, it, it's really movements that are co-opted. If you think about it, these are these are definitely places that, and I and I do believe that um, the people that are dictating or, or you know documenting these experiences do they do mean well. A lot of them do. I like to think that yeah uh, they do, but it's it's sometimes it, it does get lost in translation and. One thing in particular, we are talking about Carnival, you know, Michael B. Jordan, uh, the actor Michael B. Jordan, yeah. he trademarked um, a rum, a Trinidadian, a Trinbagan, um, Trimbagonian rum, uh, which was, he trademarked the name Juve, which is actually a part of Carnival, um, which is a big fete, it's a dance in the morning, and he trademarked it to make his rum. And he got so much pushback for that. Uh, initially, people came out and said, "You know, you're you're trademarking Trinbagonian culture, and you're not Trinbagonian." And the whole idea was, "Oh, well, you know, we're from the African diaspora; we should be able to do that." And yet, it goes back again to what you were saying earlier about the, you know, blackness not being a monolith. And yeah. it's it's yeah. it's situations like that where you have a, a monolith like. Michael B. Jordan, you know, someone with a bunch of resources, a bunch of lawyers being able to do it and trademarking a literal tradition, a cultural tradition of Trinidad and Tobago. And and the thing is, it, it was done kind of in with a sleight of hand because after he got people riled up about it, he got some press over it. He quickly yep. attracted the statement. He was saying, oh, I'm sorry. And then everything was fine. And he got the free press for it. Yeah. The part of me makes it, a part of me is thinking that, you know, he probably knew it was coming anyway. He just wanted to get the free press. 
Uh, <laughs> so there's 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 an industry. What I'm saying is there's an industry in cultural appropriation, not only to appropriate, not only Justin Bieber and, and Diplo and Major Lazer yep. um, appropriating Caribbean vibes and stuff like that to make world beat and stuff like that, but also the outrage that comes with it is a part of that industry yeah. because it's a yeah. hype machine. It's the new hype machine. It's it's better than payola in some cases. <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's one of the things that's super interesting to me about Lil Nas X as an artist is mm. his entire career is taking advantage of that. It's kind of like turning that right wing, you know, rage machine on its head for press. But it's it's a very similar thing that he's doing, right? Where he's like, oh, I know people are going to get mad about this. So then people will be talking about this and they'll be playing clips from my video all the time and I'll be in the discourse. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, which is, uh, I think, kind of a- It worked. It worked. Yeah, this is a very, like, kind of a very different situation than Michael B. Jordan, but I think it is an example of how people are actively using the kind of rage cycle as- marketing. Something that I wanted to, you you kind of mentioned, and we talked about uh, before the podcast that like, I, I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on is kind of talking about the appropriation of dance hall music. And like, like um, you mentioned, like Justin Bieber, and especially in like the mid 2010s, there was this mm. very big fad where everyone was really into these supposedly dance hall beats and stuff like that. Like what's your, just in general, do you have any kind of thoughts or takes on that whole situation? Yeah, just just guttural indigestion that Pepto Bismol can cure. <laughs> just like straight off, just like from you mentioning it, like uh, I I immediately. Yeah, I, like I think a, I could hear you cringing there. <laughs> yeah, I get like a cacophony, of like that's someone to lean on song, like like just high pitched vocals and squeals set to you know syncopated rhythms that are very vaguely reminiscent of of um you know reggaeton not even dancehall but just reggaeton and and just like someone screaming in a UB40 accent um it's yeah. it's just it's uh, that early era was i don't even know i'm glad it's over i but i i fear that it it comes in waves and that's what even makes it worse because it just reminds me that you know caribbean culture the ethos of it is just it's a coat. It's it's a season. It's yeah. a seasonal dress that you yeah. wear uh, every winter when it's getting a little well, cold out. You throw it on and you get some. You get some. You know, sounds from it. It's kind of funny that like that lean on song. It's kind of funny and kind of telling that apparently, uh, like Diplo originally offered an arrangement of that to Rihanna and she turned it down. You know, yeah. someone who actually <laughs> is authentically Caribbean was like, ah, I don't I don't think so. And it's funny because uh, Rihanna is something else. I mean, she's she's amazing in a lot of regards. Uh, it's it's going to get me canceled, but like I don't care for all of her music, but I care for what she yeah. stands for. Um, and it, it is something It's a testament to the fact that a little uh, a woman from from Bridgetown Barbados is able to become one of the most ascendant and visible women in, in pop culture, not even in music, yeah. just in pop culture yeah. in general. That's 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 amazing um, because the Bar- Barbados is a rock and, you know, that this is where you're <laughs> at. It's, it's incredible. But, you know, a bunch of this is also a give and take. It's something that I've also looked at as to how I engage with it as well because we perform Caribbean-ness as well. A lot of people perform these stereotypes. A lot of people perform, of of Caribbean descent, by the way, people of Caribbean descent know what we other ourselves, othering as, as, you know, we we make ourselves extraterrestrial. We, We caricature ourselves at times. And, you know, we do it because we know that it works for the most part. You know, when I, I know that if I, if I make a YouTube video in my most animated self, that it will do better than if I don't, or at least I think it will. And and the fact that I think it will mean something as well, just as much as Rihanna makes a song like work, uh, that is, you know, in my opinion, probably the most derivative 
and and terrible rendition of a dancehall song to come out of, of pop dancehall for quite some time. But only I can say that. <laughs> but, I mean, yes. um, but the thing is, like, it she she does it because she knows it'll work. And then you have Drake coming in. Oh God, Drake is is yet again, uh, in my yeah. opinion, maybe even worse than Justin Bieber. Because what is it about us Canadians? I don't snow. <laughs> you know snow, right? Um, yeah, Oklahoma. yes. Yeah. In I, <laughs> oh God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I think the reason behind Drake and Justin Bieber as well, like part of the actual reason behind that is Toronto has a very yes. rich uh, Caribbean diaspora. But yes. Drake, you're not part of that diaspora. Or a part of, you know, Houston or a part of yeah. the UK or a part of, I think he spoke uh, Spanish on one of those songs and started, you know, he, I think that what Drake does, and I know this is a tangent, but I think what Drake does is he just extends his, his 15 minutes of fame every, about <laughs> 15 minutes more every time by jumping on a new wave, which in a way is, is what you're supposed to do. Reinventing yourself is fine. You know, David Bowie does it. Stevie Wonder yeah. does it. You, you're supposed yeah. to. Um, um, I think as long as you pay, you know, your dues and it goes back to, you know, if you're going to do cultural appropriation, you know, cite your sources and and yeah. uh, and uplift that community as well in your wake. I think a big thing for that, too, is like, you know, when you see something that I think the Rolling Stones were always very good at, good about is like they would share the stage with B.B. King, you know, and they would mm-hmm. like you do see musicians who are like um even like. Even Eminem is incredibly deferential to black rappers a lot of the time yeah. and like is like, no, I'm a thief. Like I stole this. Like yeah. like there, he has there a whole are song a, about that. Yeah. Yeah. Like like and and Drake very much I mean, I don't even want to get started on Drake's like <laughs> the way he talks, his Caribbean affectation that he just midway through his career decided to start talking like that and literally just stop he just hung it up like he just hung it up and then he went to uk drill um and then he went from uk drill he started out you know the the thank me later era where he first came out when he just came out with young money he sounded like he was straight out of houston he wanted to be a houston rapper he wanted to be pim c and bun b it's pretty but it's not just him you know it's it's literally a culture that has been created around using caribbean rhythms and and affectation and and uh you know the the lingo the dialect the ethos as a as a fad as a costume and you take yeah. it on and you you know people talk about i i'm sorry that i have to use this uh analogy but people talk about kim kardashian changing her her whole ethos once she left kanye west uh, yeah. They talk about conspiracies about her taking um, her butt implants out just a little bit uh, every other day, like very gradually to signify this change of how she's even changing her body to more so be acceptable to a different demographic. You know, Kylie and and uh, her sisters taking out lip injections to take off black features or, or make them less prominent because they're done with that phase. They're done with that part of the yeah. of the culture. You know, they so it's it's just the culture vulture way of of you know using an actual minority culture and the the parts of it that you find to be desirable and you hang it up when you don't want to. But the thing is, these are people's lives. These are people's bodies. Yeah. These are people's cultures. I, I think the other, another go-to example of that is Miley Cyrus, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nobody talks about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, to go to a thing that uh, you were talking about for and a little bit earlier is sort of one thing that, I find gets sort of often purposefully swept under the rug in these sorts of, not not this particular, but like these sorts of conversations, especially among like white folks, is the idea of compensation. Is the idea mm-hmm. of not just like, you know, saying like, oh, B.B. King is great, but, you know, bringing him out on stage so he can get paid. Yeah. And like putting your money where your mouth is and, you know, funding charities in those communities or whatever. But like a lot of this, again, comes back to just like, white folks and majoritized folks in general have easier access to a lot of markets and can make a lot more money. And them making money off of these things can wind up making it harder for people actually from those cultures to monetize their work. Because again, I think to go way back to a thing you were talking about with the, with Adele is like often the same things that like white folks or majoritized folks in general get 
praised for, for like being innovative and having these brilliant new ideas are the same things that people in minority cultures get criticized for and get sort of barred from professional spaces and barred from like elite spaces in general for doing the exact same things. And so if you are using someone else's culture and you build a really successful, like financially viable career off of it, I think there is some obligation to then, I mean, broadly, I think there's an obligation to help people who are oppressed in general. Like if you have, if you're in the position to do so, I think that's good whether or not you've profited off their culture, but especially if you've profited off their culture. I think this kind of, in general, it's the same as a lot of the academia stuff we were talking about. And like one of the one of the big things that I've learned in recent years and been trying to be better at is just get uncomfortable, make yourself yeah. financially uncomfortable, put yourself out there at risk of upsetting people that follow you and stuff like that. Like make yourself be willing to make yourself uncomfortable if you're taking stuff from somebody's yeah. culture. At the the very least you can do is make yourself uncomfortable for them. Yeah, I I think that that's I I would love to say it's admirable, but I I would love for it also to be yeah, quotidian it, of of what has come out of you know you think of of the Shane Dawsons you think of of how many how much of American culture which is the zeitgeist um, of of culture but at the same time yeah. American culture is like you know what what exactly is it? it it's 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 amazing how American culture is the most visible and apparent culture. In the world, I think it's fair to say, but at the same time, it it is no culture. If I, yeah. I don't, it, it's it's no real like you can't really like pinpoint those traditions specifically to be American. It's a it's a conglomerate of different cultures that have been co opted have that have been reduced to their commodified conclusions and turned into something else. Turned into Chinese food, turned into the fortune cookie, turned into, yeah, you know, it's just a black product, uh, uh, you know, a caricature of whatever it once was. And it honestly, I think we're getting to the point, I'm optimistic about it, that that people are beginning to see that. People are beginning to see how the Americanization of everything is is synonymous with commodifying it and turning it into something that bastardizing these cultures. And yeah. they're beginning to seek out the source. They're beginning to look for, okay, well, where did that original sample come from? I think one of the great things, one of the great things that is that the internet has enabled that more and mm-hmm. more, right? Where it used to be like, like now if I want to listen to Lee Scratch Perry, I can open Spotify and have his entire discography. Like, if I was 20 years ago, if I went to an HMV and was looking for a Lee Scratch Perry CD to listen to in friggin' like rural Canada, <laughs> I'd be completely out of luck, right? There's yeah. there's there's no way, right? I'd be I'd be lucky if I could find a Parliament Funkadelic, but I would certainly find the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah. So that is like something something of the internet that's a really great thing that's happening is it's encouraging to see people having that curiosity because it's available to them and being willing to dive in. And I know for me recently, like over the last few years, all of the music that is like most interesting that I kind of have become obsessed with. Like I've over the last few years, I've gotten really into dub music. I've gotten really into Afrobeat and Fela Kuti and stuff like that. Like mm. all of these musics that previously, like growing up, I wouldn't have had access to, but yeah. that were really influential on stuff that I did have access to. Yeah, and and, I, and I'm getting into more full and full of hell and grindcore and and you know just yeah. like very esoteric funk from from the coal wave and you know and and <laughs> stuff like that. And I think that's amazing. I think it's amazing that ASAP Rocky was influenced from uh, Houston rap music, and he's from Brooklyn, New York. You know, I think it's amazing yeah. that you have these. I think it's amazing what globalization has, has done to art. You know, at the same time, it can also be very daunting for what what implications it has for art, because globalization can also mean that you standardize everything and it makes everything one. But at the same time, it makes things more accessible. And I think that's the best analogy for cultural appropriation. You know, I think that it can be just like anything. um, It is capable of immense good as it is, you know, unspeakable horror. Yeah, 
it's such an interesting time to be a part of any sort of cultural discourse. Like, like clearly, I think I think what's happening right now, kind of post internet era, is all of these simmering tensions under the surface of a lot of these cultural discourse are finally kind of exploding all at once, and it's very, you know, like chaotic yeah. and just it's just wild. <laughs> Yeah, we're seeing all of the like interconnections because suddenly there's a lot more conversation available, a lot more room for conversation. And so we can sort of see more how this thing is like similar to this thing or different from this other problem. And so, yeah, you know, yeah, A plus, B plus to the internet, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a great place. But at the same time, you know, it's it is. Yeah, it it can be. It It has its downsides. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, YouTube yeah. in itself is also is also you know a great. I think it's probably the best platform to come out of of a lot of out of the past ten years, ten fifteen years, because I can't think of yeah. a better thing. The democratization of the creator of cultures of YouTube, even though you know things can be biased uh, a lot on YouTube, and it still falls from the same pitfalls yeah. that a lot of different industries do. Um, I think I can't think of a better place to. <laughs> You know, it brought us together. So look at that. <laughs> yeah, on that, we've been talking for almost an hour now. But I wanted to know: is there is there anything is there anything in particular that you feel that you haven't gotten to say, like anything at all that you want to bring up that we haven't touched on yet? I think that the fact that you asked that question is 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 just commendable to this podcast. So if there's anything I haven't been able to say, oh, it's you. just that this it, it just speaks to the character <laughs> of y'all, and I really appreciate being on here. Um, I would love to know what, what y'all are listening to nowadays. I mean, I've been bumping the the latest uh, Big Thief. Oh, I've heard. I, I had a friend who said that the latest Big Thief was really good. One of my latest obsessions has been Mulatu Astatke, who is Ethiopian jazz artist, but he's a really interesting kind of like part of this whole cultural conversation thing because he's an Ethiopian jazz artist who went to the States and heard Latin jazz, which is obviously influenced by Caribbean culture, and was like, this is great, and mixed Latin jazz with traditional Ethiopian music. So it's he's kind of this, like, almost like this full circle of the diaspora kind of coming back, right? Where you've got the Ethiopian diaspora, you know, going to the Caribbean, going to the States, and then you've got this Ethiopian coming, seeing all of that, and being like, oh, oh, this, this fits. I see how this all fits with Ethiopian music and tying it back together. So that's that's been my latest favorite is Mulatu Astatke. Okay, I'm looking at him right now. I've been, um, honestly, like I've, I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before, don't actually listen to as much music not for work as I'd like to, just because like I spend so much time listening to music for work and then, you know, I go watch TV or something to take my brain off of it. But like <laughs> recently I've been on like a big early to mid 2000s new metal kick. So like mm, okay. recently, as in the last thirty years. <laughs> Look, so like I don't Deftones need this from Noah. <laughs> like Deftones and uh, Tool and stuff. Yeah, like Disturbed, Otep, you know, Lincoln Park, uh, stuff like that. And you know that that's like I said, when I do listen to music because that that's sort of like comfort food music for me. Like that's mm. what I grew up with. That was the stuff I listened to in high school, and like that is just like it's stuff that brings me back to like a very specific time in my life. And so I, I that's sort of. When I'm just like, oh, I want to relax, what should I listen to? That that's what I tend to gravitate towards, especially recently. I like I go through phases of being more experimental. Like whenever I come back to like comfort food, it's it's you know, it's disturbed, it's Rob Zombie, it's OTEP, it's you know, Lincoln Park, it's stuff like that. Anytime when I think of disturb, I just think of that ooh, ah, 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 ah. it's it's oh, <laughs> yeah. God, I used to be able to oh, do that. Boy. But <laughs> <laughs> the other one I've been listening to a lot lately, actually, um, and is Lee Scratch Perry. Funny that we should bring <laughs> oh, him wow. up. And, and just, yeah, yeah. He's one who, where, like, I had always, like, I'd always listened to, um, you know, like, I knew, like, Disco Devil and, like, I knew a lot of his big stuff. But now I'm really kind of sinking my teeth in. And, man, there's just so much depth to that catalog. Like, what an absolute icon. Absolute icon. He's he's en- he's yeah. enigmatic, you know. He yeah. I, I know there's got to be a documentary on him that I haven't watched yet because I mean, he really thought he was god. Like if you if you listen yeah. to his concerts, like he thought he was god. 
I'm like, damn. Like, yeah. can you imagine just the narcissism and the <laughs> that you need to have in order to do the things that he did? <laughs> yeah, I'm always fascinated by musicians who like like have that sort of ego and are kind of right about it yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Like th- that's what's Kanye wild West. to me. Like, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Absolutely yeah, changed yeah. the game. But yeah, no, I, for folks who are listening, if you, I don't know about any documentaries, but if you do want a good video on Lee Scratch Perry, there's one on this YouTube channel called Foreign Man in a Foreign Land <laughs> that you might want to check out. Hope, hopefully it meets the expectations. But yeah, I I go into almost everything about that. And it's weird because it's, it's one of my l- least performing videos, in my opinion, from my slew of, like, I have, like, amazing yeah. videos that did perform so well. Uh, sandwiching that video. And it's it, it yeah. just speaks to just how little interest, I guess. I, I tried to make it as appealing to just your average yeah. viewer as possible. I'm all like, you wouldn't know, but this person influenced the Beatles. And then just like, nah, I don't know who that yeah. dude yeah. is with the weird <laughs> cotton candy beard. <laughs> it's not even necessarily little interest. It's just little name recognition. Right. Like, right. yeah. Because we just, we, it's not a name that a lot of people know. It's like, it's like I I know Lee Scratch Perry. I know like a little bit about him. I've never dug all that deep into him, and so like I I, I see that, and I like it. It doesn't immediately register for for me necessarily, or it it does. It does now, but for a long time it wouldn't have that this was someone that I really needed to know about. Yeah, I think I think there's this with a lot of Jamaican music for like people like outside of the culture. I think there's this warping effect to Bob Marley where like, you know, people who don't listen to a lot of, you know, dub or reggae or any of these just kind of view Bob Marley as this monolith for like, that's what all reggae music is. And that's what Jamaica is. And Bob Marley's like, and I mean, Bob Marley's great. I love Bob Marley. He's fantastic. But I think his, his influence is so outsized that it just like warps and devours all of these people where like Bob Marley wouldn't be who Bob Marley was without Lee Scratch Perry, without Peter Tosh, like without all of these people too. Right. Like, I think it's just, it's just a thing of, you know, and, and again, I think this is something that often happens with marginalized communities. It's like Bob Marley is the one that gets to represent all of that whole cultural milieu. And then people can nod and be like, yeah, Bob Marley's great and never go deeper into yep. it. It's like yeah. saying something is cultural appropriation and then you don't have to deal with it yeah. anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one thing quickly before we uh, we send you off, if I could hold you hostage for a few more minutes, <laughs> I really wanted to just, while we've got here, is there any Caribbean musicians that you just want to shout out that you think we should check out, you think our listeners should check out. Yeah, like, I feel like this is a a great opportunity for you to shout. It could be someone historic. It could be someone working right now. Just anyone at all that you feel like shouting out. Okay, well, I will definitely use this opportunity to probably speak about or gush over my favorite maybe even my favorite folk musician, but definitely my favorite Bahamian musician. I'm from the Bahamas, so I think I'll be doing a disservice to not only my country, but everyone else. If I did not shout out the late and great Exuma, I hope he's dead because I just I just killed him. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I'm pretty sure. Um, Exuma, uh, Tony McKay, and his album, The Obear Man. And I know I hopped on about how Dangerous it is to buy into the stereotypes of, you know, Caribbean people practice voodoo. But Tony McKay did a whole album about practicing voodoo and it is great. It is. That sounds really great. It's called, it's like the standard for what is called freak folk. Um, Oh, nice. It is, it is. Taj Mahal says he's influenced by it. Um, I think that it's it's influenced more people than we even know that even care to mention. It's one of those things that you could imagine picking up in this, you know, bedspoke, um, very esoteric coffee shop that has like this one album, one vinyl of Tony McKay's uh, Exuma the Old Bear Man. <laughs> it is the most visceral, uh, magical experience that you will ever have with a folk album. I am positive. Yeah. I can put it next to Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde. I could put it next to uh, Nick Drake. I could put it next to I, anything. And it is just absolutely yeah. that. It, it just blows my mind every time. And it is so... So good. Um, I, I can't. I know yeah, what please. my evening's yeah, going to be tonight. Check that out. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, one other question mm-hmm. before we get going, because uh, 
I don't know that we talked about this that much, but you make music, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, funny enough, uh, I'm gonna. I'm, I hate talking about it because they're woefully more uh, talented than. Nah, well, not plug talented, yourself, but, but but yeah. So I grew up in. Um, I I listened to. Uh, do you guys know um, who let the dogs out? Um, yeah. Of course, like <laughs> so, yeah. ba- yeah. Baha men, Bahamian Baha men, kind of know where I'm going with this. Oh. Uh, they made that song. It's actually a cover from a Trimbagonian band, but they made that song popular. And the person that produced that was kind of like my uncle, and I stayed in his studio oh, for like, it, yeah, it's oh. it's weird. I know I left it for the end of the podcast, <laughs> but yeah, I I hate talking about it because it's just like one of those things, like where you're like, hey, you're only as as um, interesting as this one tidbit right here. <laughs> but but yeah, so I kind of grew up in his studio and I learned, you know, I did the Royal Trinity Music School music qualifications. And yeah, I, you know, was downloading FL Studio on a torrented Dell and, you know, Love I was that. making little, making little yeah. uh, hip hop beats from there. And now I make just about anything. I made the theme song for Foreign Man in a Foreign Land, which is aptly named Foreign Man in a Foreign Land. It's <laughs> on sense. all streaming services under the name <laughs> Ransford James, R-A-N-S-F-O-R-D, James. Like I said, I have far too many names and it makes, yeah. you know, it very difficult for the police to catch up with me. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's out there in the interwebs. I want to make more music and it's weird. YouTube is actually helping me do that because it's, I'm trying to make a song for every introduction um, of my yeah. videos. So that means I'll be making one every two weeks. Maybe. We'll see. Don't yeah. quote me on it. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm going to check out your music. I'm definitely going to um, check, check out, out the Obeya Man. Yeah, that sounds incredible. I actually, uh, I'm really, I, I did a video a while ago about like the voodoo influences on blues music. And I'm Ooh, really yeah. like, got really interested in that. So I'm really excited to check this out. And uh, yeah, so one more time. Where can everyone find you? What's your channel? What are your socials if you want to check those out? Any of those. So right now you can find me at youtube.com slash foreign man in a foreign land. I or just search up foreign man in a foreign land. It's probably easy to do it that way. Yeah. Um and as of now, I think that I think that the fine folks over at Standard is trying to hook me up with a social syndication thing because I have no social <laughs> media at the time. I'm one of those one people that are just off the grid totally. I absolutely, I'm jealous. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I loathe social media. But of course, you know, this this what we do makes it very difficult for us yeah. to do it regardless. So I will be on it soon. And if you if you happen to listen to this in the future and you're a time traveler, then you can find <laughs> it probably at Foreign Man in a Foreign Land, wherever that is. I'm probably going to be on TikTok and Twitter with that name. So if you search up Foreign Man in a Foreign Land, chances are you'll find it. But you will definitely find me on YouTube where I upload yeah. every other Thursday, um, everything as, as long as nothing happens to YouTube, which I don't envision happening anytime <laughs> yeah. soon. Yeah, I hope not. Hopefully not. <laughs> It'd be bad news for all of us, yeah. Everybody. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was an amazing conversation, and I would love to have you back sometime in the future. I feel like we're just kind of scratching the surface on conversations about Caribbean music, and just in general, Scratch. you're a very thoughtful A. Scratch. A. <laughs> it was a privilege and a pleasure for me, y'all. I, I really enjoyed it. Of course I knew I would because I enjoy all of your guys' content just a lot already. So, you know, I, I appreciate oh, it. You. It's a privilege and a pleasure, and I would definitely love to be born uh, some other time in the future. Amazing. Well, and sure. thank you all for tuning in and listening. Yeah. Go check out Foreign Man in a Foreign Land. Yeah. <laughs> bye. <laughs> All right. Bye, y'all. Yeah. See ya.